Welcome to Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, a podcast series sponsored by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work and the Community Technical Assistance Center of New York. I'm your host, Jason Jones. This series brings together thought leaders, community members, and individuals with lived experience to discuss and dispel the myths and stereotypes surrounding black boys and men, while providing facts and best practices for those working with these often marginalized populations. Today's podcast will highlight some of the prominent myths regarding black boys in schools and expand upon the best practices to close the achievement gap. We're joined by Dr. Ivory Tolson, the president and CEO of the Quality Education for Minorities Network, professor of counseling psychology at Howard University, and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Negro Education. Prior to his work with the QEM Network, Dr. Tolton was appointed by President Barack Obama to serve as the executive director of the White House Initiative on Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Dr. Tolton, thanks for joining us. Let's start by hearing a little bit more about you and the work that you do. Right now, I'm the president of the Quality Education for Minorities Network, the QEM Network, and we're a nonprofit that advances STEM education for underrepresented minorities primarily through work with minority-serving institutions. I'm also a professor at Howard University, and I've conducted quite a bit of research on looking at achievement and motivation among historically marginalized students in a variety of different learning contexts with a special emphasis on African-American males. And from my understanding, the QEM network has a national reach impacting students throughout the country. Can you speak about the work of the organization? So we provide technical assistance to faculty members at minority-serving institutions uh, to help them build their research agenda and to compete more successfully for federal governments to advance their research and programs. We also work directly with students through our internship program. We have a summer internship program in partnership with the National Science Foundation where we recruit students from uh, historically disadvantaged backgrounds Uh, to uh, bring them to Washington, D.C., and assign them to work with professionals over at the National Science Foundation. And they also work with us on a series of learning strategies, seminars, webinars that help to advance their professional development, as well as uh, inspire them to pursue graduate study um, beyond their baccalaureate degree. That all sounds incredible and quite uh, comprehensive. So, Just getting into the topic, from your understanding as well as your expertise, what would you say are the biggest myths regarding the academic achievement of black boys and men in this country? I think the biggest myth overall is that the problems that we are seeing with their performance in school is something based on either them or their culture or their community and not a problem of the system. So a lot of the work that I've done is to help to expose uh, uh, the system uh, for uh, certain practices like underfunding certain schools, using redlining to divert resources to a school that has uh, one population of students and to reduce the resources that another population of students is getting, using biases about uh, a student culture and abilities uh, to deny their access to uh, higher level classes like calculus and physics and trigonometry. So, so there's a, you know, there's an overall myth that performance is due to 
more internal are are um, challenges within that's fixed uh, within who they are, and and I can get into some of the the specific myths that that have spawned from that if you want me to. Oh, please do. We'd love to hear more about these. So a lot of myths come from the families are are the way that their families are viewed. Uh, there's a myth that children from a single parent household is at a disadvantage academically. And the research that I've done where I've looked at large data sets, uh, some of them were specifically designed to understand the family, does not show a significant difference between the achievement levels of someone who comes from a, a single parent household versus a two parent household. And in fact, it's really the characteristics of the of the parents, uh, like whether or not the parent has uh, has education, a higher level of education themselves. It, it has to do with the parents' practices, parenting practices, uh, the parents' tendency to give more love and support to the child, cooperative relationships between parents when they're not living together, and also the, the parents' expectations uh, of the child and interaction with the school. So when we use a myth like, you know, just whether or not there are two parents in the household, to predict, uh, to, to make negative predictions or assumptions about the child's aptitude, our ability to achieve, then we end up denying a lot of children the proper education before they've even gotten started. Of course. And I, I feel like many of these myths really have to do with these systemic injustices that you really pointed out. One of them that I think is particularly interesting is this notion that many black males are automatically slated to go to prison. And we're talking about the school to prison pipeline in many ways, predicting how many young black boys will be imprisoned within their life. And I know that from some of your work, you've identified that as a myth as well. Yeah. So there are problems associated with an overrepresentation of black males in the juvenile justice system. Uh, you know, that is not a myth. Uh, there are problems associated with achievement. Problems come in when researchers and pundits and social commentators try to try to integrate what's going on in the juvenile justice system with the with the schools, and they make the assumption that if we deal with at-risk children, then we're we're somehow inadvertently giving them a better uh, academic experience. And, you know, a lot of times when we, when we have this view that young black males, just by virtue of them being a black male, is at risk for the criminal justice system, we end up devising strategies in school where their only aim is to keep a child from the juvenile justice system. Now, that's not a very lofty goal. A lofty goal would be to give them the type of curriculum and environment that's going to spur their interest in going to college or help them to think about what kind of careers they want to have. That's going to give them a love of learning and help them to have experiential experiences. Uh, some of the th same things that we see in some of the schools that uh, don't have high percentage of, uh, of black and brown kids who, who have a, a lot of students that go on to, to, um, uh, going into to college. So when we think about uh, young black males as the other that is in need of some kind of specialized attention based on their propensity to 
act out in ways that make them more vulnerable to the criminal justice system, then a lot of times we end up not structuring their education in a way that really suits the needs of students who just really need a quality education. Right. And I think what's interesting about that is that we're not catering services to all students. We're really catering to certain types of students and hoping that everyone fits within that mold. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has helped me to really understand young black males better is to really talk to them and to understand what are some of the things that, that that's challenging about their experience. And when you talk with them, you realize they're, they're just as hungry for a quality education as anybody else. They just want a school that respects them. They want a school that, uh, where, the, where the teachers treat them with a, a level of dignity uh, and, and where they can have a type of holistic learning experiences. They, they, they don't want to be in an environment where they have to walk through metal detectors every day and where their, locker room, their, their lockers are searched uh, randomly. They don't want to be in this overly punitive environment. And, you know, a lot of times when we think about the school to prison pipeline, we do think about discipline. Discipline is something that we really do need to think about. The way that we structure a lot of schools where they're being disciplined disproportionately more harshly uh, than they would if they were at a, in a different type of school environment. If, you know, someone were to ask you, so what are the facts regarding black male achievement in schools within the country? What are things that we're not talking about, but are actually happening within the schools that are positives? I think that, you know, if you want to know the right thing to do, you have to look at success stories. Uh, And I, you know, I think that there are some examples out there, you know, examples like Urban Prep in Chicago and the Eagle Academy in New York, where... They, they have had a positive agenda for the students, and they've received positive outcomes. You know, one, one of the things I found in my Breaking Barriers report is that when you look at success factors, you know, if you look, at, if you look within the population of young black males as opposed to doing an, a comparison analysis, a compara- comparative analysis, uh, where all you're doing is comparing them to, to white students, you, you find more rich information if you're looking within. So if I were to take young black males who are doing well in school and compare them to young black males who are not doing so well in school, then you have a better chance of finding the things that are applicable to the success of those that we want to help. And, you know, some of the things I found in the Breaking Barriers report were things like health habits, like promoting students getting a good night's sleep and having a proper diet at school, uh, helping them to understand the value of positive social relationships, different things like that uh, was associated with young black males doing well in school. Also looking at family relationships, looking at positive learning environments uh, in, the, in the household and parents who treated their children with love and, and respect and, and uh, that uh, complimented them frequently, building up their, their esteem uh, and that promoted a college-going culture. You know, that, have, that was associated with young black males doing well in school, having the appropriate amount of community resources and extracurricular activities at the school, uh, young black males who were involved in the extracurricular activity at the school were more likely uh, to do well in school. So, you know, that just becomes an easy 
thing for schools to do, you know, take a homeroom survey, assess how many children at the school are participating in, in any extracurricular activity. And if you have low participation, then it's time to revise some clubs and organizations. Uh, it's time to, you know, have presentations in the classroom, identify student leaders. Some of the student leaders may be the same students who get in trouble, uh, but they're not being stimulated. And so you, you create leaders out of them. And then with respect to the school, what I found with the Breaking Barriers reports was that the relationship with the teacher was very important and that young black males wanted the types of relationship with their teachers that was based on mutual respect and the agency. They didn't want a teacher that just, you know, knew the material, but they wanted a teacher that treated them as a person. They also wanted a school that they could connect to their future. They wanted to understand what was going on in their classrooms and how what they were learning in school connected to a positive outcome for, for their future. So none of these things, are, you know, is rocket science, but it's things that we don't really talk about as much as we should. And I think what's interesting about that Breaking Barriers report is that it truly takes into account the opinions and perspectives of the young black men that are within these classrooms, specifically asking them, what do you want to see from your schools? What would best support you? And I think that that's something that's often missing from the discussion in terms of actually asking the population, how can we best serve you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that that really it was an eye-opening experience for me was when I was working in the prison and an inmate came to my office and he just talked about uh, the power of seeing someone like me with the kind of position that I had. And he said that growing up, he didn't see many people that looked like me. And he ended what he was saying with the line, talk to the kids. He said, what I, what I really came here to do is tell you to talk to the kids. And, you know, talking to the kids has been something that has resonated with me and, and, and something that I've used to really enlighten my, my mission. When I was writing the Breaking Barriers report and I was also uh, judging a writing contest for young black males at the same time, I found a lot of congruity and synergy between what I was finding from statistical analysis and what some of the young black men were saying. There were a lot of lines that I, that I used from their essays in the Breaking Barriers report. One of them that stuck with me was, what about to be seen as a person with a name been proof of statistic, a memory, and to many, a shame? Basically, what he was talking about was how a lot of stats are just driven at them, but he wants to be seen as a person with a name, not a statistic. And there was, there was also one that said, being a black man is a blessing that people have tried to make a curse. Uh, and, you know, of course, you know, reading things like that made me very sensitive to the types of ways in which we talk about young black males. At the same time, I was reading a young black man saying being a black man is a blessing that people try to make a curse. Uh, I'm seeing social advocates who are on the same team as me going to these schools saying there are more black men in prison than in college. You know, these are things that young black males who are trying to figure out life, trying to figure out how they're going to prepare for the ACT or, or try to figure out if college is even for them, trying to figure out how they're going to learn how to apply to college when nobody in their family has ever gone to college. They're trying to figure out these types of things. And the only thing we could do is give them all these statistics about the likelihood that they're going to fail. You know, a lot of times when we get on our soapboxes, 
we really don't do it with with these young black men in, in mind, but they are listening to us. And, and I think a, another another thing that has made it difficult for the field to really do what's in the best interest of a lot of young black males is is, is because of the dominance of objective research. The Breaking Bad report was both objective and subjective. It was objective in the fact that there was large data sets that was used, there was statistical analysis that was conducted, there was test of significance that was performed, but it was subjective in the fact that there were essays from young black males who was used to to better inform the research. There was a researcher who uh, was not shy about using his own personal experiences of being a young black male and his observations to place the the research in its proper context. There needs to be more research that's conducted uh, that blends what we know about good statistics and rigorous research with a good subjective understanding of what's going on in these communities. What's interesting about what you said is the impact that you had as an individual, as a black man on another, them just seeing you within that position. And I'm wondering about the notion of increasing the number of black men who are teachers. Do you think that that could help with engaging boys in schools at all? Yes, but the way that we often describe the contributions of young black male teachers, I think is disconnected from their true usefulness. Uh, A lot of times we look at young black male teachers as surrogate fathers, people that we position in the school in order to save the most troubled kids. They become a a, a part of the, the bad narrative that we use for bad strategies. So when you have young black male teachers in the school and you decide that you're going to take a young black male with serious emotional problems with, with trauma uh, and a lot of things that they need to deal with that's beyond the capabilities of a teacher that's serving all of these students, and, you, and you, you're, you're putting these students in the black male class just because they're a black male, is treating the, the, the issue very superficially. Now, the reason why young black males are important in the classroom is because of their contribution to the profession, not just their contribution to individual students. So they should be involved in the interprofessional dialogue. Uh, They should be used as a resource to help all teachers do a better job with teaching all students. And every school should have as a policy that that, that students are never assigned based on their race or gender, that that the, the assignment is always random, and that every teacher, regardless of their race or gender, has the capability to teach any student regardless of their race or gender. So we talked a lot about what specific schools can do in terms of engaging black boys. What do you think we need to be doing on the policy level? So on the policy level, we need to do a better job of connecting our strategies to research. Uh, and so some of the things that I discussed earlier, like having extracurricular activities in school, a lot of our policies deal with testing and a lot of the, the results from tests drive policies, but we really don't have any any research evidence that good performance on the test is connected with any positive life outcome, even even success in college. You know, we just don't have the data to support that. 
but we do have research evidence that participation in extracurricular activities connect students more to the school and they end up doing better in school. But a lot of the policies that I see involve reducing the investments in extracurricular activities in the arts and in clubs and sports and increasing the investment in, in test prep. And a lot of that money goes to, to external consultants and contractors and it takes money away from things that would that would help the students have more enriching experiences. So so that's a policy that, that really needs to be addressed. Uh, discipline policy needs to be examined. All the things involved with the zero tolerance uh, disciplinary policies, the, the, the types of searches, security guards in the school. Uh, I visited a school in New York, and they, they, they had to have about six security guards at the school, and the, the security guard at the entrance did not know who the principal was. You know, I, I asked the security guard for the principal by name, and the, and the, and the security guard who was searching bags coming to the school did not know who the principal was. Some of the practices are, are actually pretty absurd. It's absurd to think that, you know, you stick a, you know, NYPD in front of the school and don't give them any type of, of specialized training in dealing with school issues and and to, to, to have them so arrogantly feel like all they have to do is search bags and not even understand who the leaders at the school is, not, not even be in a position to, to be a servant. If you don't know who the, who the principal of the school is, you can't really serve the school effectively. So, so the discipline policies definitely need to be looked at. The testing policies uh, need to be addressed. We should not be teaching, teaching to the test. We should be accommodating uh, multiple types of learning, giving kids multiple types of experiences. I think that you know, a lot of the policies are common sense, but, you know, practice-wise, for some reason, people who are making some very serious decisions don't seem to be getting it. And with that, Dr. Tolton, I'd like to thank you so much for your expertise, for really delving into this topic with us and giving us some things that we can improve upon uh, within everyday practice, but also some policy implications that we can address. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. As always, thanks for joining us. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, our presenter, Dr. Ivory Tolson, and our producer, Brianna Gonzalez. To learn more about our work and to check out some of our resources, visit mcsilver.nyu.edu and ctacny.org. Until next time, this is Jason Jones, and we are changing the narrative together.